So what I would like to look at with you, I'm a philosopher. I'm an odd duck in lots of ways. I'm especially odd because I'm a philosopher who's going to collar you and say you are too. And this is for you. <laughs> so that's kind of how I go. And um, I love the phrase inviting the real. I think that's um, characteristic of, of our knowing. And I, I that's the main point that I want to uh, make. But you as a church body, and especially you're new to each other, you're new to the Stanleys, and you're new to change in, in your congregation, and um, uh, uh, new to the future, new to what's going on in the church around you, let alone the community. And uh, we, even if you were old to it, we're always asking the questions about um, what does it look like for us as a church community, as a body of Christ to to uh, be and live afresh in, in this, this area. And um, my area of philosophy, I think, bears on that. And so I want to tell you a little bit about what I like to teach and see if it's something that can help you as, as you live as the body of Christ here in, in Paddington. So here's a little bit about me, and there's two of my gorgeous former students. I grew up in a Christian Bible-believing home, and uh, we had Bible drills. I knew, you know, all there was to know about the Bible, I thought. But um, then around age 13, I found myself with some odd questions. One was, how do I know that God exists? And the other was, how do I know that you exist? How do I know that there's anything outside my mind? I had this goofy idea that I had ideas in my mind that I was certain of, and precisely because I had an idea of, this is my daughter, Stacy, by the way, who uh, has traveled with me and helps me with so many things. Uh, but I have an idea of her and precisely because I had the idea, I couldn't get beyond the idea to see if she was really there. So you can see I had a skepticism, that's what skepticism means, a doubt about reality. So these big words, epistemology means study of knowing metaphysics means study of reality and my questions had to do with knowing and the real and um it took me some years to find out that it was philosophy that my that my problems were philosophical and then more years more decades even to realize the problem wasn't me in fact everybody in what i'm going to call the modern western milieu or age um had similar issues. And um, so what it really was, was what I call implicit but dominant philosophical commitments of the modern age. So I want to talk to you a little bit about that tonight, because I think it's really important to how we see ourselves. And I think it's adversely impacting the church. And um, it needs to be addressed and addressed lots, just a lot, a whole lot. So I call myself an epistemological therapist. And so I'm going to start by saying to you, there's one thing you need to be philosophical, and that is to have been born. However, we live in an anti-philosophical age. So the modern Western age, which I'll define later on, it has an implicit philosophy that is anti-philosophical. So most people don't even consider themselves philosophical, which is why I always have to start by talking you into it. <laughs> and we have inherited baggage that really is messing up every discipline of our lives. And so we need something like therapy of a philosophical sort. This is just basics on philosophizing to get you oriented. So you can see 
you already are philosophical. These are four big areas of philosophy, but whether you've had a course in philosophy or not, you are living out some posture or orientation with regard to all four of these areas. So what does it mean to be human? Max does not ask that every morning, but we do. <laughs> okay, there you are, excuse me. But uh, in any case, you're not asking what does it mean to be canine? So, but we ask what does it mean to be human? So that's an area of philosophizing to, to think what gives us meaning as humans. Um, the bottom right corner has to do with what the real is. What is real? Why is there anything there? or rather, or is there anything there? So questions about me and questions about the real beyond me, then those two other areas are ways we relate to the real. So how do we come to understand it? How is it that we know what is true? And then the other one is has to do with our action in the world, what is right and good and beautiful. Now, you might say, okay, so where's God in that? Well, he's in a lot of places on there, but but one is he's he's real. So I define reality as God and his stuff. Okay, so so uh, anything outside my mind includes what's what's uh, in the created world, but also the creator. All these interpenetrate—you can't have one without the other. And um, then you've got this dynamic going between you and the world. So you relating to the real, making sense of it, responding to it. And we do have a deep level, fundamental philosophical orientation to the world that we live out, whether we've had a course or not. This is a quote by Parker Palmer, who is known as an education guru in the US. And um, the, the point of the quote is just to say, whatever your epistemology is, meaning your sense of, of how we know what it is, what we know, it plays out throughout all of our the dimensions of our lives. So the relation of the knower to the known or the yet to be known becomes the relation of the living self to the larger world. So your epistemology, whether you've used that word, word before in your life or not, is playing out from in everything from church to your Golf game? Do we play golf? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it, it, it impacts business, it impacts artistry, uh, counseling, education, just everything. Now, here's a juicy quote. I love juicy quotes uh, that I think is, um, expresses so well what I think is a proper feeling of the philosophical. So G.K. Chesterton might be a name that you know. He wrote a book called Orthodoxy, and this quote is at the beginning of it, and he's, he's using it to say that's what this book is about. He says that this is the main problem for philosophers, but I just told you you're all philosophical, so this is the main problem for all of us. And this is rhetorically stated, and it's absolutely beautiful. How can we contrive to be at once astonished at the world and yet at home in it. And so I think it's given to us humans to be people who are, who belong and, and do that in an astonished way. So astonished belonging. We are at home in this world and it's also a thing of wonder. It's not indifferent or ho-hum, but it's just a matter of astonishment. So I think that gets at what is a healthy 
orientation of a human being toward the world. However, what we've got in the modern Western age in these implicit dominant uh, philosophical commitments is exactly the opposite of that, okay? So this old picture is there because it's a great expression of somebody whose eyes are glazed over, he's bored, he's indifferent, he's disconnected. So hidden presumptions about knowing, I will say, thwart our knowing, and in the end, they thwart all that we are and do. You may not have thought about this, but you might have felt it, okay? I think we run into it intellectually, but also in our spirituality, uh, in how we do church. That's what ecclesial means, psychologically, artistically, physically, culturally, professionally, we actually wear our philosophy in a bodied sort of way, we, and we feel it. And so we can feel that something's wrong, even when we can't articulate what it is. And so I'm saying that about the um, defective ideas in the modern age. So I would say, and, and this is something, by the way, you can discuss all of this after I leave, because John is not leaving. <laughs> so, so he'll be in a position to, to talk about these things. But um, I, if you were to ask your neighbors what they thought knowledge is, I'm not saying ask them what is true, but what sort of item is, a, is knowledge? I think most of us would say that knowledge is information or knowledge is facts, it's exact, explicit propositions, it's linear, it's impersonal. We tend to privilege the bits, so we, we're all about analysis and reducing down to get hold of the bits, so then we say we really understand or we've really gotten in touch with, the re with reality. Um, our agenda in modernity is all about human mastery over nature, <laughs> okay? So, um, we are in this for power, utility, control, and commodification. Um, we're really ambivalent with regard to whether the world is actually there or not. So either we think we can just read the information off an indifferent world, or we can just construct the reality itself. So I, you know, if I had the time to do a workshop with you, I would stop at this point and say, can you give examples of this? <laughs> do you find, do you run into people who think this way? It may or may not be you. I'm just making the point that, that a lot of people think this way. By the way, I wanna show you this. This is a brochure for this Saturday's Gospel Conversations annual conference being held at Presbyterian Ladies College. And um, I'm, I'm the speaker. And we will do something more workshopish on Saturday. So if you're if you'd like to hear it again and uh, talk through some of these things, that would be uh, the time to come. So knowledge is information mindset. Another thing that characterizes it, I call Esther's Daisy of dichotomies. And um, this is a diagnostic, so that you can see that this is how a lot of people think about knowledge. Okay, so. These words in this column, uh, if you, and here's how the daisy works. If you put all those words in the center of the daisy, the point is that we generally think that knowledge is facts, is reason, is science, is theory, is objective, it's public, has to do with our mind. Um, I'm sure present company accepted. Lots of people think it's male as opposed to female. And 
also though we as white people that the white people not, might not be aware of this i think from a non-white perspective this also seems to be the center seems to be white and these are all yay words as i call them okay but each one of those is part of a, an ordered pair the other one of which is not in the center of the daisy but it's out on a pedal and so we say yay knowledge boo belief yay facts boo opinions boo interpretation boo values boo morals do you see how this works yay faith boo reason i think everybody that considers christianity has to wrestle against that that divorce between reason and faith science is opposed to art Science is opposed to religion, it's opposed to authority, to tradition. Theory and application are seen as a one-two, step one, step two. Objective as opposed to subjective. You see how it goes? I'm not saying you think that way, but I, th I think any of us who live in what I call the modern West run up against this, okay? And it's really kind of hard to um, defeat. I call it the knowledge as information mindset. In loving to know, I call it the defective epistemic default, which abbreviates to dead. So, and this is what I think of as the modern age's implicit but dominant epistemology. So here's my slide to say something about what I mean by the modern age. Uh, time period, 17th century to now. Uh, this is a Google definition. Uh, the modern age rejects traditional values to exalt the new, the now, and the future. It's definitely Western. It's post-Christian. It's only growing stronger. And so, yay words for modernity is our power, mastery, and utility. Boo words. Don't you love these profound philosophical evaluative concepts of yay and boo? <laughs> boo, wonder, reality, philosophizing, and beauty. There's a lot of baggage, there's fallout. And you know, you can pick just two or three of these words and say, ooh, ooh, yeah, maybe that's a problem. I really think, for example, that the modern age and the philosophical, the implicit philosophical commitments of the modern age really engendered my skeptical questions, okay? And that it also leads to boredom because you're supposed to be dispassionate critical, standing back, passive, critiquing, right? Well, that leads to indifference and boredom. It's totally about irresponsibility. This is why I'm not necessarily inclined to have a Q&A at the end, because that, that uh, kind of underscores this passive, critical uh, posture <laughs> when we need something that's more engaged. Um, where is wisdom in all of that? That's another thing, like what that's, there's no account of wisdom if you're dealing with the knowledge as information mindset. All those wonderful words in the colored box are totally absent from the defective epistemic default. Tracking? By the way, if you get tired, I always tell my students, Get up and pace quietly in the back. <laughs> I mean, Aristotle had a peripatetic philosophy, so make yourself at home and walk or walk around back there. I totally get it. It's all of us. It really is. Here's my favorite philosopher these days, D.C. Schindler. And um, 
He writes at the beginning of this book, Love and the Postmodern Predicament, about our culture's loss of a sense of reality. He says, to be human is to desire intimacy with being or the real, to be ordered to communion with reality, knowing and cultivated it, cultivating it. And though I didn't bold that, that's what I think. I'm with him on that. But what, what it means to be human is to long for intimacy with the real. And to be ordered to means that's what you were made for. This is your purpose. Your purpose is communion with the real, both understanding it and cultivating it, okay? But what he says is a crisis in contemporary existence, um, a loss of sense of, of a sense of reality inevitably entails a dissolution of self. So really modernity is disconnected from the real. And that just was my 13 year old problem. And I think it that problem only gets worse. So if you think of all the rhetoric around false facts or whatever else is going on, that is a total disconnect from reality, okay? But you know what? Information was a total disconnect from reality. So we're only uh, reaping what we sowed. All right, Makoto Fujimura is a famous Japanese American artist. And um, I'm, in addition to other things, I'm a Fujimura Institute scholar. So I get to, to work with him from time to time. And uh, this book of his culture care, I, my copy's back there if you want to thumb through it. You might consider a book discussion of Little Manual for Knowing and, and Culture Care. I think Culture Care is a good book too. And um, Mako's boo words <laughs> are listed here. These are words that he says, and these are bad things. So pragmatism, utilitarianism, commercial, commercialism, trans, the transactional, commodification. It's not that, you know, uh, material or, you know, pragmatism is bad in itself, but as part of this milieu, what he says is the soil in which I was planted was not the soil I could thrive in as an artist. So artists struggle just to survive economically, right? Because uh, somehow they're in a world in which they do not fit. Uh, this is a fragmented world. It's a world where we have said it's scarce. And really what an artist needs is a, is a reality of abundance. Wendell Berry is a famous farmer, philosopher, writer in the US. Um, there's lots of Wendell Berry fans over there. And this book is maybe my favorite. And here's his boo words <laughs> in remembering. And he connects all of these with modernism. So absence, we are checked out. We are not connected with the real. Control, isolation, anonymity, disembodiment, information, leaving, not returning, uh, mastery, and you see the play on words with regard to the title. This is a book on remembering, putting your members back together. And all the books in this series, the series is the Port William membership. So these farmers who have covenanted to each other and to the land. So the Port William membership. But this book is um, about dismembering and then remembering. Um, I would humbly suggest, and I'm going to get on the airplane and go home and leave you all with this, that, there, uh, that the, um, 
the knowledge as information mindset has also infected, especially the Protestant epistemic or um, evangelical church. And so we have our own daisy in church. So we say, yay, propositions, yay, sermons, yay, Bible studies, yay, conferences. Yeah, I just invited you to one. Yay, apologetics. And that's kind of like prop or a Protestant Christian modernism. It's almost in, in my area, I know people that it almost sounds like they want to die. So they'll get all the information, all the Christian information. So the reason we live is for comprehensive Christian information. Uh, and we have a daisy where we, I think we don't know which side of the reason faith thing we're supposed to be on. We have this one, two of theory and application. Now here's the thing, the kicker, as far as I'm concerned, this is, this is so sad. I grew up in Sunday school knowing that Jesus was always the answer. Well, in daisy talk, Jesus is on a pedal. So your personal relationship with Jesus Christ is not in the privileged center of the daisy. It's on the marginalized, delegitimated uh, pedal. So ah, there's a problem. There's a problem with that. We make a divorce between absolute truth and relativism. This leads to culture wars. I think it also leads to spiritual abuse. So I, I submit to you, and I would ask you to think about whether what I'm describing as the defect of epistemic default actually has also infected our churches. Have you heard of Leslie Newbigin, a foremost missiologist, retired and started writing after 35 years of service in India? And this first book of his is so famous, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. He returned home to England and felt that even though it was his home, it was no longer his ideational home. It was like an alien culture. And so he set about as a missiologist trying to figure out how to communicate the gospel in the modern West, right? That's what missiologists do. And so in this book, he argues that something is actually stopping the ears of Western culture so that they cannot even hear the gospel. And he goes on and argues in that book that the ear stopper is epistemology. So he's going to say, before you can even present the gospel, you've got to do the pre-evangelistic work of epistemology. David Kettle, I think, was an Australian and a priest, an Episcopal priest, and in this amazing book, and he was a successor to Newbigin in the Gospel in Our Culture Network, and he writes uh, describing the theoretical paradigm, which is just what I've described. He says, in modern society, a theory of knowledge has established itself that turns theoretical knowledge into a paradigm for all knowing, including in an act of logical inversion, knowledge of God. So then he, 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 he gets the value fact and subject, privates, uh, uh, objective, public divorces there. And he says the idea has subverted the exploration of reality at the level of our deepest and most lively personal engagement with the real. I mean, these are big claims. And he says, modernist epistemology has domesticated the church. That's powerful. And he says, this is the winter of Western Christianity. 
Here's Walter Brueggemann, who in a book called Truth Telling Us Subversive Obedience, says a substantive decision is required of us for modernity has eroded even our readiness to hold to the miraculous scandal of the resurrection. He says, but the matters of life and faith cannot be expressed in the tongues of modernity for its technical epistemology incapable of doxology has consigned us to death and despair. Why does this matter? I would like to propose that we in the Christian church have committed the sin of modernist epistemology. Many churches have imbibed the modernist model of knowledge and everywhere the gospel has been eviscerated, the church has been domesticated, and mission has been distorted. We're a mess. So what do we do? So we got to do something about modernism, but what do we do? If you are positioned in the center of the daisy, the alternative looks like the petal. And so we talk about modernism and postmodernism, and lots of Christian believers say, yay, modernism, boo, postmodernism, okay? Uh, so that's a problem. That can be a problem. What I want to do now is propose a, an alternative approach to knowing, which is actually what I think you already are doing, and I'm going to say this approach actually dispels the daisy. <laughs> so let's see how that goes. All right, everybody stop and take a big breath in. <gasps> Let it out. <coughs> Pardon me. All right, so that was, that was lecture one. Okay, so here we go on the solution. I'm going to say what I think the problem was from this point of view um, later on, but I want to talk about the loving to know mindset. And I would like to propose that you actually are already doing this. You've got this inconsistency with regard to how you might be self-describing in modernity. And this is what you're actually doing when you know, like riding a bike, and it's a more human way of knowing. So this is an American poisonous snake. It's a copperhead. And, um, He's obviously trying to uh, be camouflaged, <laughs> but he's standing out pretty well in this picture. But the idea is, <clears throat> in any perception, you have got to pick out the pattern from what's what it's up against, okay? So we have this moment. In fact, I'll just tell you the story about this time when my little girls uh, dragged me out into the woods behind my house and said, Mommy, Mommy, look! And they pointed down at the, the leafy floor of, of the woods and, and um, said, look. And all I saw was the leaves, right? So, so uh, but we had just been to a bo little boy's birthday party at a nature center. And the ranger had said, well, we have two poisonous snakes in the state of Missouri. And uh, one of them is the copperhead. And you can always tell the copperhead by the set of Hershey kisses on his back. Do y'all know what Hershey Kisses are? They're, they're chocolate like the chocolate. Well, that's what I eventually saw was Hershey Kisses. And at that moment I went, <gasps> and my world changed. <laughs> and I was grabbing my children and getting ready to run. But it turned out, you know, he was sitting there looking at me 
And, uh, I, you know, he was looking at me before I was looking at him. And when I did run, I ran for the camera and took a picture and you can't see him in the picture. But in any case, so in all perception, we're having to select and pick out a pattern against a backdrop. All skills work this way too. So here's another story. When I was little, my father wanted me to learn to ride a bike. And uh, so he borrowed a bike. It was too big for me. Uh, he did not believe in training wheels. And uh, his idea of teaching me is what we did. He took me and the bike to the top of the grassy hill at the back of our yard. And he put me on this contraption and he pushed me and he yelled, balance. <laughs> did I say I was a baby skeptic? <clears throat> so I was sure no human being could ever balance on two points. And then I didn't even know what his word meant. I mean, I can, I can still hear, you know, hear him saying that and thinking, I don't know that word. What good is it going to do? What is that word going to do for me when I don't even know what it means? Well, I think his idea was that by the time I got to the bottom of the hill, I'd be riding. <laughs> I don't remember the bottom of the hill, <laughs> but I do ride a bike. So somewhere along the line, there was some kind of moving from point A where nothing was working out for me. You know, the word was meaningless. The bike was meaningless. The, the hill was terrifying. My body was not working out for me. Just the whole thing was opaque and meaningless and disparate and disconnected. And somewhere along the line, if you're a bike rider, somehow you get inside all of those things and connect them in a dynamic pattern, and then you're riding a bike. So I get this from a famous Hungarian scientist turned philosopher named Michael Polanyi, who wrote this book, Personal Knowledge. It was his Gifford lectures around the turn of, or the halfway through the middle, halfway through the um, 20th century. And he was a discoverer. That was his job. He was in conversation with Albert Einstein and other famous names. And uh, he's credited with many, many discoveries with a lab that people came to from all over the world to apprentice. Nobel Prize winners came out of his lab and he was about discovery. So the question of discovery is how do you come to know? Right. And he said, if knowledge is explicit information and nothing else, no scientific discovery could ever happen. But it does. So maybe we need a fresh epistemology that says what scientists are already doing, and you are too. And he proposes that all knowing is subsidiary focal integration. So if I try to write that out in ordinary language, this, these are the part headings in my book, Longing to Know. Knowing is a profoundly human struggle to rely on clues, to focus on a pattern, which we then submit to as a token of reality. The creative act just is this too. So that's one of the ways we break down the walls between science and art. Um, it just is the creative act. And um, Polanyi knew that. All knowing, and now see, if you're at the workshop, I'm going to get you thinking about this processing with regard to a skill that you have. Bike riding, if no other. Reading is a great example. Writing with a pencil is a great one. There's just tons. Driving a car. So all knowing 
has two levels, the from level and the to level. And he calls that subsidiary focal integration. So it's not linear, it's not additive. You're shaping or inviting a pattern that makes sense of the clues that you're relying on. So you rely on in a subsidiary way, subsidiary meaning subsidiary to the pattern, but another word he uses is indwelling. It's like your body. Actually, you know, right now you're probably blessed to be not thinking about your body at all. Well, that's because you're indwelling it, <laughs> okay? That's why it's so weird to go to the doctor because he turns your, your body into an object, <laughs> right? And you start thinking about your back or your toe or whatever it is as he's poking. But yet generally, all of our body is subsidiarily uh, indwelt. And that's how it is that it feels to be our body. When you learn to ride a bike, that becomes part of your body too. The words of the authoritative guide become part of your body too. So then when you're relying on this, it's opening up this further pattern, okay? Um, actually, those things you're relying on, you can't put into words at the time that you're relying on them, okay? Which um, is, leads to a great... Uh, excursus about how teachers teach. Somewhere along the way, there is an aha moment, an oh, I see it moment. It's a moment of insight. We often use the word epiphany. We have a sense when we say, oh, I see it, that it was given to us from beyond to see the pattern. No matter how hard we have worked for it, we feel inspired that something has come to us from beyond. And that new pattern transforms us and opens an entire new world full of possibilities. It's a lovely thing. It's lovely. And I would like to say that subsidiary focal integration, the more you think about bike riding, the more it's going to dispel the daisy of dichotomies, the defective epistemic default. There is no way you can ride a bike on the defective epistemic default. You can't be doing that. You can't play football. You can't play baseball. You just go on. You can't paint. There's nothing that you can do from the point of view of the um, defective epistemic default. Now, the next few slides, I'm going to go over this a little just again. So you hear it again. And I hope it's fast. And then I want to get to the inviting the real part. So the integrative feat, I think of laying out for a Frisbee, right? So it's a logical leap toward what is yet to be known at the point that you're reaching, this is about discovery. So we're orienting toward the yet to be known, it's risky, you expose your flank, you've got to take responsibility to leap, <laughs> okay? It's a, it's a gesture of hope, you're moving toward what you do not yet know, and it's going to put it together in a pattern that does not reduce to the clues that you're relying on. So driving is such a great example of this. Oh, I should have flipped my picture for you. Uh -huh. Sorry, <laughs> I, I've done that before. It's not linear, it's not additive. Um, integration, when you integrate to this pattern, like when I saw the copperhead, it transformed the clues that I had been scrabbling to try to make sense of, okay? And that includes uh, your body. It's gonna change how your body feels too. So uh, this is maybe an old picture, but the point of the picture is those guys are all looking at the screen 
and they're subsidiarily creatively scrabbling with their fingers. Okay. We all, we can learn touch typing, but, but then, you know, we're working with our fingers and not looking at them. We don't look down at our fingers. It's creative. It's subsidiary. It's this kind of dynamic, artful scrabbling toward a pattern that we're trying to access. Clue is a great word. There is no account of a clue on the knowledge as information mindset, right? Because a clue is half understanding. And you have to rely on clues if you're going to make a discovery. There's three sectors of clues. One is the authoritative guide. My father yelling balance. You've got to have authoritative guides to open the world to you, to teach you, to see what is even there. Okay. Another sector is my body, which, you know, at the top, at point A, at the top of the hill, it was opaque. I was all thumbs. I, you know, it just, I didn't know what to do with, even with my body. But when you get, so you're riding a bike, you're keeping balance on the bike is essential to the performance. And okay, you can't put it into words, but it's palpable. You could cut it and you can train it or you can get it wrong and need to get it more right. So um, balance is, is uh, your felt body sense. And then the world, the place of your puzzlement. So here you are thinking of, of your church and what it's like to be St. George's in Paddington. And so this is your place. And you're, you're uh, creatively scrabbling toward the real to invite discovery and a further pattern. When you do get it, then the world starts to open up to you. So once you get so that you can play tennis, then you make contact with reality and you have this breakthrough to insight and discovery. It's a lovely moment. And uh, you live out of it <laughs> from that point on. So the idea of epiphany, love this great Emmaus story in the Bible. It's just the best, oh, I see it moment ever. It's the one that's essential to our salvation. And uh, that line, their eyes were opened in the breaking of the bread is just fantastic. Now, this is the part of Polani that I absolutely loved, that once you have the aha moment, you connect with the real and the real opens up to you in possibilities that you couldn't have named, okay? Vistas, possibilities, and you also have this lovely sense of communion with the real. So you were rooted in it, but you struggled beyond it, and then you developed this, this uh, beginning of a lovely relationship um, with the world as surfers have. And I want to say all-knowing is subsidiary focal integration. All-knowing is from, to, and beyond. And the more I've thought about the beyond, it's become more and more person-like to me. And so what, I, what I've gone on to develop in covenant epistemology is to say, we do not know in order to love. We love in order to know our goal is encounter and communion with the real. So now in light of that, you can look back and see what was the problem with the modern West. So Polanyi talked about what would happen if you reverted to fixate focally on what should be subsidiary, your whole performance would grind to a halt, okay? You would simply lose the pattern. So if our little guy on the, on the bike stops or just looks down at his foot on the pedal, he might end up in the ditch, 
Okay, so if you were to focus on what you were subsidiarily wearing and indwelling, that would the the pattern would go away and the performance would stop. Okay, so all of those are little bits, aren't they? Guess what? Modernity's dominating knowledge is info mindset has ensconced focal information as the paradigm of knowledge, and it's actually blinding us to reality. What we need is epistemological therapy. People in the modern West, inside and outside the church, need to be unleashed from a knowledge as info mindset to return to their original loving to know mindset. So one question is whether St. George might need that as well. So loving to know is what I call covenant epistemology. This is this augmenting of subsidiary focal integration. If you wanna to go through the workshop, come on Saturday. And the paradigm of this book is to say that the best paradigm for knowing is the interpersonal covenantally constituted relationship. And guess what? Jesus is the answer to our epistemology. So the redemptive encounter of being transformatively known by Jesus Christ that changes everything. That's the best paradigm for knowing. When Thomas heard that Jesus was risen, he said, I won't believe unless I put my fingers in his side and in his wounds. Jesus shows up and he says, Thomas, put your fingers in my side and in my wounds. Thomas did not say, oh, correct, I got that right, check. He was on his face and said, my Lord and my God. And I would submit that's the only way you respond when God calls. <laughs> so we do not know in order to love, we love in order to know. This is a little bird that I got to nurse back to health one summer. His name is Bandit. He's a cedar waxwing and I was the other birds of his group. And uh, I struggled with great love to find out what to feed that little guy and um, bring him back to health. I'm gonna say reality is person-like and what we need to do is invite reality. You do not command a person. What you do is you exercise proper etiquette to invite this person graciously to self-disclose. And that's what I think we need to do in inviting the real. There is no such thing as inviting the real in the defective epistemic default. It's just not there. But you had better not treat your spouse in any other way than inviting the real. Uh, favorite movie of mine, The Black Stallion. I don't know if you would have known it, but this, there was this incredible dance sequence <laughs> where this little boy and this horse who need each other desperately uh, dance back and forth and come to the place where finally he's riding the horse. So it's, it's just a lovely scene. There's various practices then that invite the real. And it's so this is my epistemological etiquette. And I actually picked these thinking of John and St. George's 
because these are things I would commend to you as inviting reality graciously to self-disclose. Love, obviously, we love in order to know. And so think about this. What person is going to graciously self-reveal to you if you do not welcome them with delight? So David Bentley Hart says, delight is a premise of any sound Christian epistemology, not critique, but delight. Okay. I'll go a little bit faster through some of these. Another thing that plays in here, this is, I could talk about this for a whole lot longer and I'll try to say it briefly, but uh, persons who have been readied to know make better knowers. To be ready to know is actually to have been grown into being a great lover. And if we love to know, being a great lover will make you better at knowing. And your turning into a great lover happens in the gaze of the delighted other, starting with your parents. So as parents, your first job is delight and your first job all the way through is delight. So Toni Morrison, a famous um, author says, in response to the question, to what course of study do you owe your literary prowess? She says, oh, no course of study. I owe it to the fact that as a child, whenever I came into a room where my father was, his eyes lit up. Somehow you've got to see yourself being seen with rapturous delight, and that actually forms you as a lover of the real. Inviting the real involves openness. You've got to be open uh, to being known in response, open to being changed. I love this line from Heschel, the Hebrews learn in order to be apprehended, to invite reality to come. Um, this is Seabiscuit. I don't know if you read the book or, or saw the film, but that's that wonderful trainer who uh, trained Seabiscuit. And I would say you could cut his presence, uh, his radical attentiveness with that horse. That was part of his being such a horse whisperer, as we might see. So presence, being present, not being distracted, but being present to someone invites reality to come. Pledge, this is the covenantal idea. Uh, there's a whole lot of pledge involved in inviting the real, in inviting the real. I say knowing is like a wedding. You pledge to love, honor, and obey. And then if you're graced, reality self-discloses. So truth actually comes from the word troth or pledge. Uh, covenant involves consent, risk, trust, sacrifice. You pledge to give yourself to what you do not yet know. You pledge to do what it takes to live life on its terms, to do the work it will take, to give welcoming space for its gracious self-disclosure and to be open to how it will change us. All of that has this pledge-like uh, piece of it. I really learned that from Annie Dillard, stalking muskrats. That's why there's a muskrat up there. So I uh, don't know if you read Pilgrim, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Now, the thing you got to do is position yourself. Uh, you want to put yourself where reality is likely to show up. So uh, in Pittsburgh, if you want to buy or sell football tickets, you, you position yourself <laughs> just across the river from the stadium where people sell and buy tickets, right? Um, or if you want to see a parade, you position yourself on the curb. Uh, that Zacchaeus up in the tree who positioned himself so that he could see Jesus. 
Uh, if we added up between us all the hours that we have spent on piano benches, I bet there'd be a whole pile of, of hours, right? Well, you've got to position yourself on the piano bench for hours and years of practice if you're going to play Beethoven's third concerto. You have to live life on the terms of the yet to be known. I've said enough about that. Noticing regard, I love this one. So uh, this is uh, Jesus and John 4 and, and the Samaritan woman. Why was it that she ran with delight to collar her enemies and bring them back to meet Jesus? It's not because he named her sins. It's because he saw her. He saw her and he saw her with regard. Simone Weil in Waiting for God talks about creative attention, and she talks about the Samaritan, the Good Samaritan. I would say seeing is what I love about John Stanley and Allison. John sees me. John saw my students when I took them down there. John saw everybody that came into that cafe. So if you wanna learn about seeing, pay attention. This is my John Stanley uh, proper slide. I've got him for active listening, which is what he taught. This was a space of listening evangelism, the Uncommon Grounds Cafe. Active listening actually invites the real. Right? So listening is not passive unless you make it that. It's not a passive recording. And you don't listen. So then you can get in your two cents and tell somebody something or even say, well, I know just how you feel. I went through that too. You said, no, what you do is active listening. And uh, we were in a city where the, the stories that you heard, first of all, were false because people didn't know how to tell their story truly. And so I had this vision, I don't know if I ever talked to you about it, but you know, a, an old water pump and you pump it like this and the water's grungy when it first comes out and you've got to pump until the pump runs true. And so you've got to listen to the story until the story runs true, at which point Captain John Stanley says, people save themselves. In dwelling, uh, Barbara McClintock is a Nobel Prize winning geneticist who writes or speaks of having to have a feeling for the corn plants, which is, she defines it as a respect for difference, sympathy that allows intimacy without doing away with otherness. Does that sound like something you could make as a motto in your church? <laughs> this is corn, I ask you, but it might do with people too. Love this word perichoresis, which means dancing around and through. It's useful for seeing the dynamic of the Holy Trinity as being like this. And I would say it's the dynamic of reality and of flourishing. And so in your overtures and inviting the real, you say, may I have this dance? And then reality says, yes, you may. And then you ask again, overture. And then you response. And so then you've got this, this dance that starts to come. And as that dance grows, that is health and flourishing in a community or a home or um, a football team or um, a church. 
So um, I added this slide because I get this from um, Maka Fujimura. And this book is, is really, I think, worth reading. It's about artists, but he comes up with some great motifs. And uh, he, he, again, remember, he's trying to cultivate uh, an area for artists. But Mako is always, ever a Christian believer and leader. And it grieves him that the church... Uh, ostracizes artists, that the church who has the gospel of all people should understand beauty, and they don't get artists, okay? So he's, he's always working around that, but he commends uh, uh, coming into a culture which is maybe toxic and sowing seeds of beauty to start to enrich the soil of culture. So how do you do that? So um, he's gonna talk about cultural estuaries. I think this estuary I found today is somewhere along the coast of North New South Wales. So you seem to have a, lo a lot of them as I read online today, but a, an estuary is where the fresh and the, wa and the salt water interchange and things can grow in kind of a rough environment, okay, with a lot of coming to and going. And this estuary fosters abundant diversity, this lively interweaving and integration. Remember, he's against fragmentation. He wants to pull diverse diversity together and strengthen the participants and make a place that's safe for creatives. Also in this book, I love this line. Uh, he calls, he says that artists are Mayarkstapas, which is a, uh, what, what, so, um, well, I can't remember the origin, Norse or something. Uh, somebody told him about this word Mayarkstapas, which uh, a Mayarkstapa is a border crosser. If you remember Aragorn or Strider in, in Lord of the Rings, he was a Mayarkstapa. Um, Mako writes that Jesus is the ultimate Mayark stop a border crosser who comes for us, you know, out of his world and, and brings us uh, to his home. He says, artists are great Mayark stoppers. They need to be cultivated. And I would suggest that John, you're looking at a Mayark stopper right here. Uh, he's pretty good at it. So uh, you can use him as a model too. Finally, I would like to say that the best epistemic practice is celebrating the Eucharist we are inviting God <laughs> to come and he comes. And that's where we get the idea of communion in the first place. So communion invites the real. Here's the thing, if you love gardening, well, you garden season by season. Let's say you've never planted a rose bush. This was me last year. And you plant your first rose bush, and then you try to listen to that rose bush to see what it needs, to give it the water that it needs, you know, the 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 fertilizer, the light. You're just continually listening. When you finally get it about rose bushes, that's the beginning of a great relationship. Okay, it's not the end; it's the new world that opens to you. So this. Perichoretic flourishing just goes on from that point. So um, here's the yay words for Wendell Berry. I'll, I won't read them, but you can see he opposes them to the boo words of modernity. And uh, I think they resonate with Meek's epistemological etiquette of inviting the real. So last slide, I would call you, I would like to say that all knowing 
is meant to be peacemaking. So we can know for shalom. So just even fixing a bike is bringing peace among mechanical things that are supposed to work together, right? And so knowing is not passive information collecting, but it actually brings about healing in the world. That's the way it should be. So here are the conversations that you can have uh, after I leave. We can do some tonight uh, as, you're, as you are interested. We can do some one-on-one. -on -one. Um, I, I would rather you practice this than, than uh, you know, sit, sit back and uh, assess it. Um, you want to think about bike riding or, or whatever it is. But what about this epistemological therapy and inviting the real and you? How does this play out in your life? How does it bring healing uh, and insight to what you already are doing in your life? Um, how does it play out for this church, St. George's? And how does it play out for you as the body of Christ in Paddington throughout Sydney in this fractured time? How will you invite the real? So thank you very much. Here's, here's my resources. There's also this thing back here that Stacy made where you can uh, become an ERF. That's an ERF, which is Esther's readers and friend, reader and friend. And then uh, there's um, these QR code things that you can get to my website and buy a book or subscribe to the newsletter. So um, I just want to say thank you. This is a rare privilege, <laughs> and I'm so glad to be with you and with the Stanleys. And I, I got to say, I'm so excited to see the Stanleys near five ways in this incredible building with ballet happening in the back of the, of the sanctuary, this courtyard out here that everybody in the world seems to walk through. This is the perfect place for the Stanleys to be involved in what's going around on. So I hope that this is a wonderful time of welcome for you to the Stanleys and vice versa, and that among you together, you will invite the real. So thank you. Esther, thank you so much. I'm uh, not sure how this pans out uh, related to previous uh, peace talks that you've had. But I do want to say thank you to Gospel Conversations who have brought uh, Esther and Stacey out to Australia and allowed us free access to my, my dear friend. I hope that in amongst all of those multi-syllable words, you have been able to discern um, some truth, whether it's about the connection between riding a bicycle or uh, understanding that the, the daisy is not actually a usable, workable way of understanding the world, that the, the modernist um, reduction of epistemology uh, leaves us dry. I want to suggest that this, uh, what Esther is suggesting, uh, could be a, a way for you to understand me and the way I work, and also a way for us to engage in useful conversations with our neighbours, with our diocese, with other churches, with, uh, with the world around us. I want to suggest that maybe this is a, a key for us to work out how to, to be transformative at this time in this city. I came here giving notice 
that I am not a person to sit with things as they are. I also gave a commitment that I'm not coming here to change you. So the inference of that is that we have a fixed point and we have a changer and we have something that needs to be changed. <laughs> so what is that for us? What is it that's going to change in our relationship with the world? Sydney Diocese and uh, the Anglican Church across Australia has changed this week. How are we going to sit with that? Where do we sit in that? We need to uh, engage with these things. And I suggest that using a different filter will help us to, um, to think differently about these things that seem set in concrete and that seem to be the way it's always going to be and seem to be unchangeable. But I am telling you that I have seen the unchangeable change. You have seen it. You've seen South Africa change from being um, under apartheid to not. You've seen the wall in Berlin come down. You have seen unchangeable paradigms in the world change in recent history. Nothing is the way it's always going to be. I am aware that we can change. And I want to make myself available to you to think about the ways that we can be the people who change the world around us. It doesn't take many people. It just takes a few committed, crazy people, uh, <laughs> creative people, to engage in a different way. And I believe that this is our time and our place. If you have any uh, things that you'd like to talk to Esther about, there's a couple of bottles of wine and more behind them uh, if you'd like uh, to engage. And uh, there's plenty of coffee and tea and beautiful plates, plate of uh, dips that those of you who are online are going to miss out on, I'm sorry. So I hope that this has been a useful conversation with you. I'm deeply grateful to my dear friend Esther and to Stacy for shepherding her through this uh, tour in Australia and, uh, and to you for making the time and uh, being intentional about being available to be uh, transformed. Amen. <laughs>